Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Well, good morning. You know it's coming. Uh, Let me look at you. So good to see people in actual summer garb. And you online too. I hope you're enjoying your summer so far. This morning, July 17th, 2022, marks precisely 40 years that my beloved bride Sandy and I have been married. This picture was taken on the day of our engagement, 53 weeks before our actual wedding. I am not going to show you a picture from the wedding itself, because although Sandy looked radiant and gorgeous in her white wedding dress, in 1982, it was apparently considered the height of fashion for grooms to wear baby blue tuxes (laughs) with wide black velvet Lapels. I look like a really cheesy lounge singer. <laughs> Not much has improved over time. <clears throat> my bride Sandy has enriched my life beyond my wildest dreams. But I've told some of you that there's a sad and a regrettable thing in our marriage. To put it bluntly and succinctly, I'm definitely smarter than Sandy. I know, I know, that's an awful thing to say on our anniversary, but it's true. After all, think of it. I chose her, and she chose me. (laughs) Who's the smart one, huh? (laughs) Cause and effect. If I do this, the result will be... If I forget to water the garden, we'll have no vegetables. If I drench myself in cologne... I'll still be plain old Daniel, just more noxious, despite what the commercials tell us. If Sandy asks, does this outfit make me look fat? And I so much as pause for a split second before responding with a clear no, things will not go well. (laughs) Causes have very real effects, sometimes dire, sometimes delightful. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. What the Apostle Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, where we now find ourselves in Lambrick's Fruitable series, is a great way to diagnose just where our congregation is right now, both personally and together, where God might be leading us forward and who we really are as we begin to think about the coming of our hopefully post-pandemic steps ahead. But I have to tell you, It's a bit of a frustrating prospect. For one thing, any discussion of the fruit of the Spirit opens up an entire smorgasbord of worldviews, life choices, vices, virtues, big stuff, certainly worth chewing on for a long while. I am so glad that as a congregation, we've heard from not only the customary talking heads like me, but also wise folks in the trenches, Lewis, Siobhan, Lauren, Carly, Sue, Jonathan, Shayla, and soon, 
Lucy, and Mark as well. This morning, I'm not going to focus on a single aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. But instead, we'll revisit the larger fruitable overview. And no, I'm not going to parrot Aaron's masterful introduction to our series, but instead, I want to give us a kind of a, a midpoint drone-like overhead view. And no, I hope I won't drone in your ears this morning. Let's dive in, shall we? And since it's a very familiar passage in our series, we've heard it over and over and over. I think we need to advance the slide. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and simply um, listen to the words. Let them pour over you. Galatians 5, beginning at verse 16. My counsel is this, Paul writes, live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with a free spirit, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are contrary to each other, so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional baggage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Trinket gods. Magic show religion. Paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. And so I'm going to invite us to spend just a moment in prayer. Lord Jesus, from your earliest infancy, you knew what it meant to be soiled. Dust clings to humans, and our own bodies experience decay and filth. Remind us, dear Lord, of our sheer earthiness. You know we need more than a damp cloth more than a change of clothing, more than merely scrubbed and perfumed skin. As dirt clings to us, so we too often seem magnetically attracted to foul things. Remind us, dear Lord, of our need for repentance. When we feel embattled, keep us from being embittered. When we carry the shame of failure, carry us to yourself. When we stumble into the old ruts, lead us into your path of purity. Oh, Lord God, remember our frailties this day and have compassion on us. We desperately long for your word of blessing. Wash us, and we shall be whiter than snow. Touch us, and we shall be healed. Create in us clean hearts, and our tongues and hands will praise you. Amen. And so Paul continues in Galatians 5, 
verse 22. But, but what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a will willingness to stick to things, a, a, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good, crucified. Since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. That means we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. Each of us is an original. Hmm. Isn't that great? Causes and effects. Real life is full of them. And so it should be no surprise that the Bible is chock full of them too. Matthew 7, remember? Build your house on bedrock, says Jesus, and it'll weather the strongest flood. Build it on sand? Not so much. Or Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord, says David. That's the cause What's the effect? And he will give you the desires of your heart. And by the way, in both the original Hebrew and in modern English, he will give you the desires of your heart can mean either he will give you what your heart already desires or he will gift your heart with a whole new set of de desires from him. Both are delightful. The interplay between them is, I find, deliciously provoking. What we don't find in the Bible are items of conventional wisdom that have crept into our collective consciousness, sometimes even veiled as quasi-biblical. God helps those that help themselves. Show me in the scripture where you find that. Hmm? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Don't tell that to mothers. <clears throat> live and let live. So, other than steeping ourselves in actual scripture so that we can detect counterfeit wisdom, always a good idea, like bank tellers and jewelers honing a keen eye for the genuine article and thus detecting a counterfeit, how can we be confident that we're rightly assessing real causes with real effects? After all, we may pride ourselves on our smarts, our savvy, our keen ability to chart our life course well. It's not that long ago, though, <laughs> that there is long-held conventional wisdom that pronounced the world as flat. Everyone thought that. That the races and the sexes were fundamentally not equal. That science and education held all the answers for solving our problems and guaranteeing our prosperity and also what true prosperity looks like. Hmm. In his letter 
To the folks in Galatia province, the Apostle Paul gives a wonderfully pithy set of diagnostics that helps us to beta test what otherwise might be just Bible theory and to help his readers perform their own personal and congregational self-diagnostic Paul outlines three key polarities which will help them place themselves accurately. First, and I don't think these take place in any rigid order, in Galatians 5.18, he contrasts the frenetic activity that results from directionless expediency, what Eugene Peterson calls erratic compulsions. Paul contrasts this fly-off-the-handle behavior with the settled qualities of godliness. The works of the flesh are restlessly unsatisfied, while the Holy Spirit is at ease yet endlessly creative. Again, the works of the flesh are restlessly unsatisfied, while the Holy Spirit is at ease and endlessly creative. Second, in verse 19, Galatians chapter 5, Paul contrasts what he calls the behavior of the sinful nature with what he later dubs the fruit of the Spirit. And please note, sinful behavior is not the root cause of dysfunction. As the old adage says, we aren't sinners because we sin. (laughs) We sin because we're sinners. Hmm? We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It is our nature. It's our spiritual, genetic predisposition apart from the rescuing and transforming grace of God. Sidebar comment. Did you know that Jesus did not come to make bad people good? Did you know that Jesus did not come to make bad people good? (laughs) No. He came to make dead people live. And the difference is crucial. Sinful, that is rebellious, anti-God, self-serving behavior, is not the root cause of our problem, as problematic as it is. No, like a virus that infects us and then wreaks its havoc in fever, a compromised immune system, tissue and organ failure, sinful behavior is just the evidence that we are genetically infected by a deadly virus called sin. And its repercussions are ungovernable and uncontainable. Well, most of us aren't axe murderers. We might even be decent neighbors, hardworking students, good parents. But reflect just for a moment. Apart from God's renewing grace, our already embedded virus threatens to erupt with catastrophic symptoms at a moment's notice. Well, third, not, don't, not only does Paul contrast erratic compulsions with godliness, and not only does he contrast the behavior of the sinful nature with the fruit of the Spirit, but in verse 19 and following, he contrasts sheer, clear evidence of corruption and decay with organically generated life. When we read Paul's list of the works of the flesh, Our temptation, isn't it, is to get our marker pen out and cross out out the ones that don't apply to us and to make light of the ones that actually do. No, no, certainly not. But I know a doozy of a neighbor that gets that one. Hmm? And sometimes with regret, well, okay, that one applies a little, but if you only knew my background and circumstances, you'd understand. (laughs) 
But Paul's intent is not to beat us over the head with the predilections and behaviors that besiege us or, or to rank us in order of relative godliness. Instead, instead, he wants to highlight what, what happens when God grows real fruit instead of decay in us. Like a good jeweler displaying her wares, the fruit of the Spirit, evidence of real life, is set against the black backdrop of our natural tendency toward the decay of corruption. But why fruit? Hmm? We know that the picture of fruit is used in the Bible to describe the end product of healthy plants, which have been well-nurtured. Fruit is a picture of our relationship to the one who loves us and sustains us. Think of how Jesus talks about fruit. Jesus says that wise pruning brings about good fruit, like God nipping away at the useless, even harmful parts of us so that we can yield what he calls the abundant life. Or again, Jesus says that good investment in God's kingdom yields a multiplication, a dividend of fruit. Or yet again, Jesus says that plants are known by their fruit since beautiful foliage alone might camouflage bitterness, rottenness. Yes, fruit is the evidence of healthy growth. But what is fruit for? Hmm. What is fruit for? To be eaten. That's a... Such an easy answer. If good fruit is indeed the end result of wise and careful nurture, it is also the beginning of delightful, vigorous life. Think, recall that now dim memory from this past winter. And now we're finally, finally getting local vegetables and fruit that taste like they really should. Not those winter strawberries that taste like they were strip mined in Texas weeks ago but real strawberries that delight us with a gush of sweet flavor. We eat fruit and it, it tastes good on the tongue. It satisfies our hunger. It literally becomes us. Fruit actually becomes our bones and sinew, our muscles, our senses. We literally live because of it. And it's a no-brainer that we are naturally delighted and thankful so what about spiritual fruit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Yes, these things are evidence that the Spirit is working deep within us, beyond our own ability to affect change. But surely, they're more than just trophies, God's trophies, to be displayed at some celestial agricultural fair. The best part of the fruit isn't their display quality, but their scent, their texture, their succulence, their taste, their ah, satisfaction. What does it mean then to experience, to taste and eat of the fruit of the Spirit? As Jonathan reminded us just three weeks ago from the poet David in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good, happy, Delighted, satisfied, is the person who trusts in him. In his own experience, David observes that faithfulness from God and faithfulness towards God 
is sheer delight. And its track record through his own experience proved satisfying. You see, it isn't sufficient to exist in a, a frozen snapshot of John 3:16 being, quote, born again. No, we also live by the Spirit and we're sustained by his spiritual fruit. I remind us again, if you get nothing else from me this morning, get this. The fruit of the Spirit is not only evidence of maturing growth, but it's also delightful food for abundant life. I'm intrigued, aren't you? That in Galatians 5, Paul doesn't use the image of a prudent investment and its rewards. He doesn't paint the picture of a wise mentor and a teachable student. He doesn't show us an architectural schematic of a strong house built on a strong foundation. These are all images we do see elsewhere in Scripture when God wants to describe what relationship with him looks like. But here he cho chose, chooses a picture of an organic growing vine or a tree producing succulent, delightful fruit. And fruit is to be eaten. It's meant to be delightful and satisfying. You see, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all the way to self-control, this fruit isn't a, fundamentally a spiritual discipline, but a spiritual and delightful fruit, which only the Holy Spirit can grow and sustain in us. And when he feeds us with his fruit, it isn't cotton candy, that teases for a moment and then disappears. When he feeds us with his fruit, it isn't just an exciting, spicy jolt on the tongue that fools us after we've ingested it and it gnaws away at our gut once it's inside. Hmm? When he feeds us with his fruit, it isn't a genetically modified counterfeit that provides only bulk without nutrition. No, the fruit of the Spirit is real sustenance. It brings real satisfaction. It's real food for real life. Ready for a grammar lesson? On a mid-July morning, you say? <laughs> Don't worry, I promise I'll be gentle. Do you notice that when Paul describes all sorts of human behavior that aids and abets the old sinful nature, he doesn't pussyfoot around. Recall part of what I just read for us earlier. It's a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, happiness trinket gods, small-minded, lopsided pursuits, just tumbles, tumbles, tumbles out. <sighs> you get a sense that Paul is describing a kind of a Pandora's box when the old sinful nature is unleashed. There's a cacophonous jangle of dissenting, splintering voices, more and more sordid ways of abusing ourselves and one another. And Paul's awful conclusion, I could go on. It's not a box set. <laughs> Here's the grammar lesson. When talking about the evil cause, the sinful nature, and its effects, subhuman behavior, God Always, Paul always, always, always speaks in the plural. Desires, actions, manifestations. And he warns his readers there's more of them where they came from. But when talking about the alternate cause, the Holy Spirit and his effect, he only says fruit, not fruits. 
The fruit of the Spirit is, not the fruits of the Spirit are. In English, fruit is one of those words that can be used for both the singular and the plural. I don't imagine that any of us go to a market like the root cellar to get a single apple or a banana, and yet we'll say, I'm going to the root cellar to get fruit. Even if we get an entire basket or even a cartful. But in Galatians chapter 5, Paul uses the singular word fruit. In Greek, it's karpos. One fruit, not karpoi, many fruits. The works of the flesh are plural, and the fruit of the Spirit is singular. It's very clear. It's no confusion in the original. There is a wonderful oneness and wholeness and completeness when the Holy Spirit is at work. It's all one. Like a diamond with many reflective facets, the fruit of the Spirit is one singular jewel fruit, but with many facets, or if you prefer, flavors. And please note, unlike the list of spiritual gifts, plural, that Paul unpacks elsewhere in his letters to folks in Rome and Corinth and Ephesus, which are variously and individually doled out to us by the Spirit's wisdom, the spiritual fruit is meant to be a boxed set, owned and experienced by every follower of Jesus. Every aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is for all of us. Do you hear that? The gifts of the Spirit are um, they're individually doled out. Some of us may get more than one, but they, they're doled out to, to suit the Spirit's wisdom to us. But the spiritual fruit, all of it, is for all of us. Hmm. In just a moment, we're going to be eating and drinking together the family meal of remembrance, celebrating through the product of actual fruit, actual field produce, wheat crushed into flour, Jesus himself broken for the ultimate sacrificial rescue, grapes crushed into juice, flowing in celebration of Christ's ultimate gift for us. And as we ourselves grow from our own spiritual birth into vigorous women and men that produce the Spirit's fruit as a natural outcome of our relationship with the creating, rescuing, renewing God, let's celebrate Him as He grows in and through us His fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see the facets? Hmm. Let's be imaginative. Let's be creative about how these could be flexed for his glory and for our joy. After our communion time, in a few minutes, we're going to close our time of gathering together in worship and conversation and eventually move out into our real worlds. Let me encourage you with some words that Paul wrote in another letter to that ancient congregation in Rome. Folks just like us. Yes, they're 2,000 years ago, but they're just like us. Folks longing desperately to follow Jesus, but struggling with real life with all its fears and anxieties and compulsions and swirling desires and hidden addictions. After spending several pages, actually 11 full chapters, telling these folks in Rome just how wonderful 
our rescuing God is. Paul gets down to the nitty gritty in chapter 12 and his words echo right down to our real life here in Victoria, July 17th and 18th and 19th. Here's what Paul writes. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. This is Romans 12, verse one. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, all the way down to self-control. And so with God's help, let's be fruitable and fruitful. Let's eat with delight. Let's be attentive where we need pruning and nurture. And let's be strengthened by the spiritual fruit which God the Holy Spirit gives us. Well, shifting gears, but only slightly, have you ever noticed the lingo various Christians have used over many years for the communion meal? Some of you come from Plymouth Brethren Roots. They call it the breaking of bread. Hmm? While others refer to it simply as, quote, the meal. Still others use the word communion. that speaks of coming together, togetherness. Some more liturgical traditions dub it the Eucharist. Literally, the Thanksgiving celebration. Others simply the Lord's Supper. While these all emphasize different aspects, they all point to our shared celebration and remembrance because our rescuing Jesus is, not just was, Lord. It's our shared meal of celebration and remembrance because our rescuing Jesus is, not just past tense, was, Lord. And you'll notice that both aspects, a little strange in the little hermetically sealed things that we get, um, both aspects, bread and wine, they're both fruit-based items, the fruit of wheat or other grains like barley or rice, and the fruit of grapes. And both are crushed to make the very items we eat and drink. So I'm going to just pause for a moment. If you haven't got one of these at the back, there is a gluten-free option. Please feel free to go back and just until the kids should be coming any moment. I guarantee you that um, the folks at that first Passover celebration with Jesus did not have this sound happening in the room, right? Although, frankly, these little wafers are a little more of what they, closer to what they would have had than a, a piece of Wonder Bread. So I invite you to take the wafer in your hand. Don't eat it yet, please. And if you'll pray with me, please. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to us. In him, you have shown us how much you love us. 
He was born in the humblest of circumstances. And he lived a fully human life filled with all the joys and sorrows that are ours, yet a life completely devoted to you. On the very night before he gave up his life for us, Jesus, celebrating your Passover rescue supper with his friend, took bread, gave thanks to you, broke it, and gave it to his friend saying, take this all of you and eat it. This is my body which is given for you. I invite you to take the bread. And if you'd like to open gently, carefully, if you're wearing a white shirt. <laughs> and invite you, instead of just um, in, in closing your eyes and praying, look around at the people breathing and sitting near you. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup. He said the blessing, and he gave it to his friend saying, drink this, all of you. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of God's new and ever, never-ending agreement with humankind. This blood is spilled out for you and for many so that sins may be forgiven. Do this in, re in memory of me. I invite you to take the cup. Let's pray. Father God, Abba, you are full of compassion and mercy. With this meal, we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, thanking you that you call us to be your friends. Because of him, the wall of hostility that we erected has been broken down, and we are now truly free to enjoy you and the company of one another without guilt, without regret. Help us to see with the eyes of Jesus and to appreciate the cost at which this free gift is now ours. Our dear Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might know the life-giving presence of Jesus in the taking of your meal into our own bodies. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might recognize the crucified and risen Christ in the lives of those around us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might share the joy of abundant, everlasting life with you and your children. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. I invite the worship team to come forward.